Um, last night I was with, uh, Elise and I were with my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law, and uh, we were spending some time just enjoying the fact that we get to know, um, my kids actually get to know their great-grandparents. It's a, an amazing thing. Elise has these amazing grandparents, and my four boys have grown up knowing Grandma and Grandpa Allen. It's really special, and it's unique. In fact, I only met one set of the four of my great-grandparents growing up, my Grandma and Grandpa Maybon. My Grandpa Maybon was born in 1898. How about that? Some of you that are older than me are saying that's nothing. Well, Grandpa Carlucci, Papa Carlucci, was born in 1880. I never met him. He died before I was born. But how many of you had the privilege of meeting a great-grandparent? Raise your hand. So about half the room. It's just, um, it's it's amazing how time passes by and generations come and go and the world changes. And I often wonder what it would be like if my grandparents, great-grandparents were alive today. I wonder what they would say about the world we live in. I wonder if they would look at a world that is now is, has full access to endless amounts of information. I wonder if they'd look at a world that in many ways has been liberated from physical toil. I wonder if they'd look at a world full of wealth and our access to it. I wonder what they would think when they look at a world full of uh, endless options of entertainment, amazing technology that leads to incredible convenience and comfort. I wonder if they look at the world we live in today and say, oh, they all must be so happy. Can you imagine them saying that? But what we've learned in the last 20 years especially, but you can even go back for nearly five decades now, Americans are less happy. Decade after decade, year after year, Americans rate their happiness at a lower level than the year before. I wonder if that would surprise them. All the things that I just mentioned that we have with the modern world, yet we live with this level of discontent and loneliness and sadness. I love the work of Andy Crouch. He's the former editor of Christianity Today. He now works for an organization that helps advance kingdom-minded businesses and entrepreneurs. Um, but he's, just a, he's a brilliant guy in deconstructing what's happening in culture and helping explain it. And he explains the modern world this way. He says, it's the result of three revolutions. And I'll describe them quickly, especially the last one. The first revolution, um, and by the way, all of these revolutions help shape the world into uh, the way it is today. Every one of these revolutions has led to tremendous prosperity, freedom, but every one of these revolutions has also redefined what it means to be human, and that's the cost of all of them. And so the first revolution was about 500 years ago, and that is when uh, wealth and value moved from land and property to currency. And now, I mean, our kids are like, what's money, right? You just wave your card and numbers come out. But that was an incredible revolution where uh, wealth was not held by families. In many cases, families that had held the same land for generations. That wealth had shifted from being held in, in land and animals now to being held in currency. And this was the beginning of modern banking, the advent of the working class and the merchant class. And it changed things. It disconnected people in some regards from the place that they live. So that was one revolution. The second revolution is the Industrial Revolution, which we've all heard a lot about and you study when you're in school. Started in the late 18th century in Europe. It really made its way to the United States and was here for the entire 19th century. Before the Industrial Revolution, human bodies and animals were the things that created power and energy, and we did the work. But after the Industrial Revolution, 
weren't transferred from bodies to machines. And productivity became the focus, and factories were built, and this was the rise of the modern city. Now, with all of this advancement and all of this new creation and this new productivity, there was a cost. There was now a new alienation for families because families weren't together the way they used to be. They're alienated from some places that they had lived for generations, and families were no longer, children especially, were no longer around their parents like they used to be. By the way, those that study uh, the crisis of masculinity, which we like to talk a lot about here at Cornerstone because we think it's special to be a man, it's special to be masculine, in the same way it's special to be a woman and to be feminine. But the crisis of masculinity that we still live with today, many people trace back to this moment when boys no longer saw their dads every day and they no longer worked with their dads. This revolution uh, led to about 50 years of what we would, today, if we were to use the language of today, we'd say 50 years of a mental health crisis. They didn't have language back then, but there is just, you know, doctors were writing about it. People are not doing well. There's different things going on. So by the time you get to the early 20th century, I mean, it's hard to imagine the 18th Amendment ever passing. If you don't know what the 18th Amendment is, the prohibition against alcohol. Can you imagine an amendment saying there's no alcohol allowed in America? But at the time of the amendment passing, 86% of Americans agreed with it because alcohol abuse had followed the mental health crisis and they said, we got to do something to change things. So there's always causes to the things that happen in the world. So that's the second revolution that shaped the modern world. And the third revolution is the information revolution. It's the most recent one. In fact, we're still living through it. This is a shift of wisdom stored in human hearts and minds. It's now stored in digital platforms. The collective memory and shared history of humanity is now stored in machines. Information that used to be embodied in human relationships and in people and wisdom that they had is now held by Google and other platforms like it. That's right. There's some incredible benefits to it. Information increased. But here's what's not awesome. There was a trade-off. Trust and reliance on people decreased. Data increased, but wisdom decreased. We live in a culture today starved for wisdom. We live in a culture today where we have so much power that you could literally go through your week without having to rely on another person or interact with them. First time in human history we are so independent from other people. Now here's the point and why I'm sharing it this morning All of these things have led to incredible prosperity, material well-being, human agency has increased, but it has removed the core values of what it means to be a person. Things like connection to a place, a people, a shared history, a family, relationships, identity. At every one of these movements, there was a deconstructing or a rearranging of those things. The modern world with all its connectivity and technology and entertainment can fill every waking moment of our day, but it can't satisfy our soul. Technology has tremendous power to make things happen, yet it is powerless to free a heart. The modern world has brought us countless influences, but it can't give us virtue. It can't produce good character. And to add to that, you know, I mentioned earlier, but we have endless information, but we lack wisdom. So Andy Crouch says this about these revolutions. With every one of them, he said, they led to a collapse in the conditions of personhood, which are being known and knowing others, knowing and being known by others. 
So this is what he's saying. What matters most in life is the connection between people. We know from neuroscience that's what actually leads to joy, but that's actually what it means to, or what it takes to define what it means to be a person and to place ourselves in the world today. I'm sure by now, most of you in the room have watched a piece or read some piece of some article that's full of research that's now warning us of the effects of an ultra-connected yet impersonal world on our well-being. For example, the American Psychological Association has published repeated warnings that our dependence and addiction to screens has led to a more distracted, distant, and drained life. I mean, we're being warned about it all the time because it's kind of the underbelly of some of the mental health things we're going through. You add to that the gift of social media and the loneliness and anxiety and lack of sleep it creates. Now, these things aren't in themselves bad, but what's happening is we have not adjusted well to these new technologies. Andy Crouch often reminds his readers, and a lot of times they're young people. I think this is an incredible uh, quote for young people to remember. And it's, we weren't made for screens, and this is how he describes it. When a baby comes out of the womb, the baby doesn't look for a screen. The baby looks for its mother's face, the face of someone looking back. So joy could be exchanged. The reality of all of this and the struggles it creates is really the heart behind this series that I get to end today. We've been in this series since the first of the year. It's called Wayfinder, Prayer as Our Guide. And the idea here is that life is full of seasons that we're not ready for. It's full of terrain that we've never walked. It's full of struggles that you didn't choose but you're dealing with. And so prayer becomes a way in which God leads us through. And so there's a question that comes with a title like that. And the question is this, a guide to what? Prayer as our guide, a prayer, a guide to what? But here's the simple answer, a guide to God. It's not so much that he gets us out of the situations, but God is the one that we actually need. Friendship with Jesus, the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need God to take us through these moments. And with God comes, as it says in Psalm 16, verse 11, eternal pleasures at his right hand. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible is Psalm 16, verse 11. It says there is eternal pleasures at his right hand. But look what it says before you get to verse 16 and verse 8. And this, my friends, is the way I like as your pastor to frame prayer today. Prayer is not so much an act. It's not just bowing your head. It's not a discipline, but it's a posture. It's a way of living in the world today. This is what it says. I keep the Lord always, or I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I jump to quoting my favorite version of that verse that says this. I have set the Lord or placed the Lord always before me because He at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Then it goes on to say, there are eternal pleasures at his right hand. Now here's the picture. Prayer is about setting God before us. Sitting in front of him, face to face. Being with him. Prayer is communicating. It certainly is talking to God. It certainly is listening to God. But it's more than that. It's just being with him. Just like a good friend or the love of your spouse. Most of the time, it's enough just to be together. And so prayer is about placing the Lord always before us. Why do we have to do that? Why the intentionality? Because life is busy. We're prone to forget. We're prone to give our hearts to other things. We're prone to trust in other things. We're prone to think that things aren't as bad as they are. And so we set the Lord continually before us. That is what prayer is. And so during the series, we taught you different ways 
of praying, different prayers that are needed at different times in your life when you need wisdom or when, when you're suffering and you're lamenting amazing messages. The team's done a great job. Been so proud of this series. By the way, it's really weird today for a pastor to say some of the most popular series that we've taught here at Cornerstone are on the subject of prayer. 10 years ago, that would not have been the case. People would have been like, prayer, let's get over it, all right? Let's move on to better things. But today, there's very few things that are helping the internal chaos that people deal with on a daily basis. But prayer is one of them, so we're hungry for it. So today, um, I wanna tell you about a day, not so much a prayer, but a day each week in the life of Jesus that he set aside to, among other things, to pray. Or think of it this way. A day in the life of Jesus each week where he would set the Lord always before him. And some of the things that he would do during this time is he'd free himself from other things. So it was a, a kind of a peculiar, strange day that he would stop doing certain things to prioritize other things like prayer, rest, relationships, delight. Now, if you've been around in a church for a while, you know what I'm talking about is the subject of the Sabbath. Or in Hebrew, the word is Shabbat, which literally means to cease doing or to stop. It's a day of ceasing, a day of stopping so that we can rest, connect, delight. Eugene Peterson sums up the Sabbath in two words. He says it's a day to pray and to play. That's easy to remember, right? If we were to use Psalm 16 to build a definition for the Sabbath, it might look like this. A day set before us each week, full of rest, relationship, and delight. Another definition that helps us is this. Sabbath, a day emptied of the ordinary work and busyness of life that is then filled with meaningful connection. So a day emptied of certain things to be filled with another. Uh, I'll just mention this before we go on. If you want a copy of the prayer book that goes with this week, that has some, some prayers that are used by people on this intentional day, you can text uh, rest or Sabbath, either of those words to the text line behind me, and you'll get a copy of that. Here's what I want you to know about the Sabbath as we get started talking about it. It's more than a day off. It's more purposeful and powerful than just a day off. We know what a day off is like. Take it easy. <laughs> Brian Carlici watches lots of Netflix, way too much. It's not a good Sabbath. It's a day off. The Sabbath is more intentional, and when it's intentional, it has power in it. We'll get to that in a moment. Sabbath is one of the oldest mental health strategies that works, that we have. It's one of the oldest contributors to physical health. And it also happens to be one of the most faithful places people seeking God have found him in their life. Eugene Peterson says this. I'm going to quote several people today because I think we need to rely on people who practice the Sabbath. Because it's a hard thing to convince people to do. So we rely on their wisdom and their encouragement. Eugene Peterson says this. Sabbath is the time set aside to do nothing so that we can receive everything. To set aside our anxious attempts to make ourselves useful, to set aside our tense restlessness, to set aside our media-saturated boredom, Sabbath is the time to receive silence and let it deepen into gratitude, to receive quiet into, your forgot into which forgotten faces and voices unobstructively make themselves present, to receive the days of the just-completed week and absorb the wonder and the miracles still reverberating from each one of them, 
And he says this, it's, about, it's a time to receive our Lord's amazing grace. And then Abraham Heschel, an Orthodox Jew, because the, the Jewish faith has contributed more to this idea of Sabbath than any other group. So we want to use their wisdom. He says this, the Sabbath is a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue, but to be in accord. Life goes wrong when the control of space and the acquisition of things of space becomes our sole concern. That's the way of the modern world. The modern world, you can sum it up in two words. Um, It's accumulation and it's achievement. And so a day where we stop doing those things. Now, the Sabbath was first something practiced by God. And so uh, this is important to understand because it's not some weird culture's uh, practice. It's not some old religious practice of yesteryear that's worn out, that doesn't work today. This is actually something that God created. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we see the first mention of it. It says, in the story of creation, this great poem of God creating, saying it's good. And then creating the next day and saying it's good. After he creates humanity, men and women, in his image, in his likeness, he blesses them and says that it's good. Says this, verse 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all the work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from the work of creating that he had done. Now, here's what's important to understand about this passage in Genesis, which gets quoted over and over again throughout the entire Bible. You will find mention of this verse in many different places by many of the different uh, writers of the scripture. It's so important and foundational. But this word that translates into our English version of rest isn't exactly what is meant. It's the word Shabbat, which means to cease. So on the seventh day, it would be a better translation to say, on the seventh day, God ceased from working. It's holy because he ceased from the work of creating. Now, what happened when God ceased, when God stopped, he created rest. Uh, I, I love some of the teaching of the old Jewish rabbis. They say, you know, a lot of people say God didn't create at all on the seventh day, but you know, he did create. He created rest. By stopping, he created rest. Here's another insight from the Jewish rabbis that I find uh, very helpful for just when just thinking about me and, and you and, and the people that we interact with. So God created for six days and rested. He worked, then he rested. But the seventh day, you know what the seventh day was? It was the first day of our existence. Humanity rested, then we worked. So there's a difference. God worked, then he rested. We rest, then we work. And it's a picture of something spiritual that when we are with Jesus, we are seated with God in heavenly places, and it's out of that place of blessing that we then work and live and do. See, so much of world religion says, prove yourself, achieve, then you will be in a good place with God, but it's different with God. We rest, we sit, we receive, then we do. Then we serve, then we change. It's a beautiful insight. In Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8, this is the fourth commandment. So this is the special time when God is forming the Jewish people. They've been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. He's trying to help form a new identity in them. He's giving them daily, weekly, and yearly practices that are to keep them and to form them into a certain group of people. And, and he, they get to this, 
the, the, the Ten Commandments. And the fourth one seems very, very strange because it's all about a day of rest. And this is what it says. Remember. That's an important word. Remember Shabbat. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And by the way, it's in keeping it that we honor it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor your foreign, any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in it, in it. but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He's quoting Genesis there. That's an important phrase. He blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. He blessed the day of ceasing. He blessed it. We'll describe that in a moment, and he made it holy. We'll describe that as well. Repeat it over and over again. So that first day of the week for you, or that last day of the week for God, has been blessed and made holy. So what does it mean that it's been blessed? Does it mean that God's just saying he likes the Sabbath more because we rest? It's a better day? I don't think so. Rest is not better than work. Work is not better than rest. So what does it mean? I think what, what we're hearing here is that God has infused power and blessing and um, productivity and health and recovery and grounding in a day of rest. And not only has God blessed the rest that we take, but God will then bless the work that we do the other six days. This is part of what it means to understand that God has blessed it. He has put his power into this rhythm, not just in the day of blessing, but the other six days of work. So we hear a little bit about this delight and this blessing in Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah is speaking to the people who had forgotten the Sabbath. They always needed more. There's more to do, more to earn. It says this in verse 13, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going on your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's what he's saying. If you keep it, there will be blessings that come. And they're not just blessings of mental health. They're not just blessings of physical health. We can all understand what rest does for us to our bodies and our minds and our souls. But it's a blessing that comes to our families and to our relationships when we prioritize other things. We empty one day of busyness and fill it with things that are more meaningful. But this is hard for modern day Americans. Uh, a few years ago, a good friend of mine who gives me books all the time here gave me a book called Meritocracy. And I thought, Meritocracy, who cares? He's like, just read the book, Brian. It frames one of the popular worldviews of modern day Americans. And it's, it's true. So um, meritocracy is defined this way, a philosophy that power, you could even add this, power and blessing is vested to people based on individual talent, effort, and achievement Rather than, in, rather than in wealth or social status or your family, okay? So that's how it used to be. And this is a good thing about the United States. It's a good thing about the Western world. We, we reward talent and hard work and determination. 
There's a payoff to all of that. But what happens is we make that the prominent way we live every single day. So this is why it's hard to trust God with the Sabbath because we have all been discipled to believe more is always better. I'll just admit one of the things I'm most proud of my sons that I see in them from time to time is their hard work. It's so good to be a hard worker. Never give up. Meritocracy. It serves us most of the time. But more and another task and more effort, it doesn't serve the soul. It dehumanizes us. We're disconnected from the things in life that give us joy and peace and that make us people. And so when it says that the Lord blessed the Sabbath, he didn't just bless the day of rest, but he blessed the other six days of work saying, it will be enough, you will be fruitful. If you don't believe me, I just go home and and Google... um, Use that special machine that I mentioned earlier. Um, The magic box, use that thing. Just put something in there like, uh, is there any connection between productivity and more effort? And you'll see that there's a certain limit where too much work leads to less productivity. Good companies know this. Good bosses know this. Good parents know this. How many of our kids' schedules are overplanned and overscheduled? Every day of the week, they're doing something. So the world says more, more, more. God says sometimes less is more. Trust me to bless it. There's three ways we can relate to work and rest. One way is that we can just think work is evil. It's part of the consequences of sin. It's been cursed. Uh, you know, it's just, it's why we toil harder than it needs to be. Someday we'll stop working, which is not true. When we're in heaven, we're told we will do meaningful work. But what we do, if you have this view, is you try to work as little as possible and you live for the weekends. There's another view of work. And that is that work is the most important thing in life. Work in your career can become your religion, your idol, the thing that you live for. You know, this used to be really uh, prominent with men, but it's now tremendously prominent with women. There's a lot of pressure on young, young women to sell out completely for their work and their career. And here's the, the message that comes, that you have to prove yourself and you have to keep proving yourself and keep proving yourself because you never rest because it's never enough. There's never enough promotions. There's never enough power. There's never enough wealth. See, there's a payoff that comes with talent and hard work. But of course, there's a cost. And that's why we all know people. We can make a long list of men and women who have bypassed families for their career or they've lost their marriage because of their career or they've sacrificed their family and their kids because of their career or they've sacrificed their health and enjoyment in life because of their career. There's a trade-off to living that way. Gallup Research tells us that currently 76% of American workers experience regular feelings of burnout. There's a price to pay for that view. But then there's this third view, and it's God's way. A way of living defined by this promise that God gives us that he will bless a day of rest. Work is good. We're made for meaningful work. Work shapes the world. When we get to be a part of meaningful work, we bring beauty and, and truth and love into the world. Good work humanizes people. Good companies keep people human as they produce. 
Work should be an extension of your relationship with Jesus. He's there with you all of those days. It's special to him. You know, Jesus worked before he went around and he healed and he did all the the spiritual stuff. For, For the good part of the first 30 years of his life, he worked with his father with his hands. Most likely he was a mason. We think of him as a carpenter, but most likely we know that he was working with stone building homes and walls. So we work, we work hard. We ask God to bless those six days, but then there's one day that we rest and we delight in God and we delight in our relationships and we prioritize people. And we trust that God will bless that. Here's a simple promise. Say it again. Six days is enough. Six days of work is enough. One day of rest is enough. Now, some of you are gonna go try it. I will tell you, the first couple of weeks you try to take a Sabbath, if you never have, you will get very, very anxious. It will seem weird. You will hate it. You'll hate living with your thoughts. Uh, I think it's a good idea to unplug during your Sabbath. Like have less technology. Free ourselves from our phones. That will make you anxious. Because you need it a little bit. But if you keep it, You'll see that the other six days become more productive and the one day of rest is special, set apart. You'll find that you're investing in things and the things in life that matter the most, your relationship with God, other people, delighting in God's creation. You gotta stay with it though. Uh, I can remember being a college student and um, my first two years of college, I was wrestling at University of Northern Colorado and uh, I signed my letter of intent to wrestle there very, very late. And so I didn't have to show up for the normal uh, student orientation where they tell you, you take 12 to 15 credit hours a semester. I just relied on the wisdom of my dad. And my dad told me, oh yeah, freshmen take 19 credit hours. <laughs> and so he's like, yeah, you don't have enough class to sign up for another one. So the whole first year is 19 and 18 credit hours. Uh, I was wrestling. Uh, my dad told me, yeah, you probably have time for a part-time job. So I got a part-time job. I was busy. And I don't remember where I got it, but I probably got it from my mom. But I wanted to keep Sunday for me. It was my Sabbath at the time. It's no longer that for obvious reasons. But I wanted to keep Sunday different. And so I didn't study and I didn't work out. And I made the day different. I served at a church. I spent time with my friends. I did things that were fun. I spent extra time praying. And I'll tell you, as busy as I was, and by the way, I thought that was the busiest time I would ever experience in my life, and then I had children. So young people, college students, never tell us you're busy. Never tell a, a parent that you're busy. I'll just give, let you in. We want to hit you when you do that. You have no idea. But at the time, I thought, this is the busiest I'll ever be. But I'll tell you, there was enough time the other six days to get the work done. And what's ironic is that was the best year for my grades of all of college, the year I was disciplined, keeping the Sabbath. It's not a formula, but there's blessing in it. Something happens to us. God uses it. You know, Elise and I want our boys to learn this. I tell you tons of stories about our boys and uh, we're really proud of them. They're, they're good students. They work hard. A few of my boys struggle with reading. They have dyslexia, so they have to really work at it. Um, we actually think it's a good thing that there's something in their life that they have to push through that's hard. 
They play sports. They're good at it. The older they get, I'll tell you this, the older kids get, if they're, if they're talented at something, there becomes more pressure or there's more pressure put on them to do more and to really, really maximize the talent, like get everything out of that, that musical ability or that athletic ability. And so for my boys, they all wrestle. And the older they get, there's this pressure in the wrestling culture that you wrestle seven days a week all the time. And Elise and I have just refused to do that. We want there to be one day a week that's different for our sons. As much as we love winning, and I know no one who loves winning more than me. (laughs) I know no one that hates losing more than me. I want my boys to have a different kind of day. Now, here's a confession, partly because I know it will lead to more winning. Rest is part of productivity. But I want my boys to know there's more to life than winning and doing and getting good grades and working hard. So Sundays for them, they sleep in, they prioritize church. My high school sons serve with the middle schoolers on Sunday. Uh, My middle school son, Levi, he serves with the special needs kids in our children's ministry. Isn't that awesome? Like, that's a different kind of day for my boys. And then you know what they do after church? They go have brunch with their extended family and friends. And then after that, they have a bunch of friends over. And they drive me crazy because they make tons of noise in the house when I'm trying to take my Sunday afternoon nap. (laughs) But it's a different kind of day for my boys. I love it. You know what they're learning? They're learning the Sabbath. They're learning that it's enough, that God will bless it. They rarely come to me and say, Dad, you know, we we need to work harder today because I'm running out of time. God gives them something amazing. You gotta work at it. You gotta stick with it. Let me mention why the Sabbath is called holy and then I, I need to move on because we're, we're gonna run out of time this morning. Um, any place in the scripture something is called holy, it is there for a special purpose. Now, I know it's only us religious people that even use that word. It's weird to say anything is holy. It just sounds like some arrogant kind of statement. And unfortunately, a lot of times, the word holy is used as a, uh, like a religious honor or distinction that's put on someone. And so, you know, we refer to people like the Pope or the Dalai Lama as your holiness, as a title. And it shouldn't be used that way. It's, that's an unbiblical way to use that word or that title. Holiness simply is a designation placed on something ordinary by God for a purpose, okay, And so there are a number of things in the scriptures that are referred to as holy. The temple was holy, set apart, okay? Uh, Something that's holy is designated to be set apart for a purpose. But here's the purpose, okay? I I don't want to forget this. Here's the purpose of everything that's referred to as holy. Whether it's marriage, the church, the ancient temple, the scriptures, the Sabbath. All of it is called holy and designated to to, to to do this. To make room for God in the world. If it's called holy, it's been designated to make room for God in the world, okay? So the temple was called holy because it was a home for God in the world. Israel as a nation is called holy because they are the people of God making room for God in their lives. By the way, the same thing has been shared with the church. The church is holy, not because we're any better. The whole thing is we've been designated to make room for God in the world. 
The scriptures are holy because they bring the truth of God into the world. And the Sabbath is holy because it brings the presence of God into our weeks and into our schedules. Into our daily lives. That's why it's holy. Eugene Peterson says this, Sabbath is uncluttered time and space to distance ourselves from the frenzy of our own activities so that we can see what God has been and is doing. That makes room for God in the world. Shelley Miller in a great book called Rhythms of Rest, Finding the Spirit of Sabbath in a Busy World, she says this, a life built upon Sabbath is contended because, because in rhythms of rest we discover our time is full of the holiness of God. So you slow down, you tune in. You're more aware. Abraham Heschel, in his writing called The Sabbath, he says, six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in our soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Get the idea? It's holy because it makes room. It shows us who's there, who's present, what life is about. Talk about trying to help people understand what it means to be human. I can't think of anything more important. It's what prayer does. It's what the Sabbath does. They do the same thing. It's intentional time to be reminded by God of who we are and who he is. Prayer gets us caught up with what God is doing. Sabbath gets us caught up to what God is working on. All right, let me mention Three things um, that are helpful in keeping the Sabbath. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Because I need to wrap up. <clears throat> First of all, keep your Sabbath simple. Just remember, pray and play. Do the things that are fun. Some people hate yard work. I like it. I'm out in the yard on the Sabbath, at least when it's warm. Keep it simple. Intentional time with God, uh, intentional time with people. Have a dinner with your family. Invite friends in your home. Sleep in. Spend a little extra time reading. That allows you to connect to the Lord. Put music on. Make the day different. Serve. Make the day different. Keep it simple. Keep it flexible. This is a huge deal. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus, people are getting after Jesus because uh, he's breaking one of the presumed Sabbath rules. And he says, you know, the Sabbath exists for us. Not, it's not the other way around. We don't exist for the Sabbath. And so if your Sabbath needs to be Friday, make it Friday. If it needs to be, you know, if you go to Israel today, their Sabbath starts Friday at sunset and it ends the same time the next day. Christian tradition, most Christian Sabbath on Sunday. Day to remember when he rose. I certainly can't do that. So there are times Elisa and I are moving our Sabbath from Monday to Friday because we like to Sabbath together. If we can Sabbath with our boys, we do. Keep it flexible. And then the last one is this. Keep it going. You will get anxious. It will get hard. Week to week will be hard, but month to month, you will see a change. You will find God in one of the places he's been most faithfully found, which is the prayerful day of Sabbath. Walter Brueggemann says this. People who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. So I hope you're not hearing today this is yet another thing to do. I love how the Jews describe it. Sabbath is a gift that we enter into. 
It's not yet another thing to do. Maybe you're not ready to Sabbath, but I'll tell you what, someday you will be because there's a cost. There's a cost to going and doing and more and more. One last thing about the Sabbath and then we'll end. I wanna make a connection for a few people in the room. Uh, The Sabbath is one of those things, one of the many things in scripture that is a physical picture of something else. It's a physical picture of something spiritual. And so Sabbath rest once a week actually becomes a picture of the kind of rest that Jesus brings our soul through the gospel. So in Hebrews chapter four, you can see verses six and seven behind me. Uh, He's talking about a type of Sabbath, but it's not the Sabbath that takes place every day. It says, therefore, since it, it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. Now here's what he's saying, okay, because it's hard to understand this. He's saying there is a type of Sabbath that sets your heart at rest forever. And it's the Sabbath that comes by joining yourself to Jesus. Saying yes to the gospel. That God loved you so much that he died for you and he loved you so much that he shared his resurrected life with you and he does that today and that is how we were meant to live, to join our lives with him. When that happens, all the earning, striving, doing, never enough feelings are put to rest and we experience now what we will experience in eternity and that is a heart set at rest. And I love, the reason I showed you this in Hebrews 4 is I love what it says here today. There are people who didn't enter into that rest, but, there, but everyone could enter into this rest anytime they want because the day of salvation, the day of rest is today, today. So even if you said yes to Jesus long ago, you enter into your gospel story all over again and you let God put your heart at rest. And if there's some of you that have never trusted in Jesus, never joined your life with him, today is the day to do that. And we use prayer all over again to just say, God, I trust you. I love you. I need you. Show me how to live. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. I bless anyone today whose heart is turned towards you for the very first time. If that gospel prayer is on their lips, I pray that you would give them words. I pray they would sense your presence. I pray they would join themselves to you and you would come in and you would begin to transform their life so that their heart is at continual rest. And then for the rest of us, Father, or not just the rest of us, all of us, I pray that we would learn this amazing discipline that blesses our lives, that fills our, day, our days and our weeks with meaningful things and allows you to work in us. And so we pray and we ask for your help as we try to keep this. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.